This is the fourth session of Recharge, Finding Your Safe Place. The title is Longing for More, and the presenters are Chantal and Gerald Klingbeil. It's good to see you. Welcome to this afternoon session. This is as part of a, of, a, of, a, of a series, really. It's not, we're not repeating what we've done this morning. So if you came this morning, great. Um, but there's always a way to jump in there. We're talking about rest, and we're not talking about the Sabbath, although we happened to talk about the Sabbath in the last session. But there was only one out of five, because the concept of rest in the Bible is so much bigger than just a day and the rest day. Let's begin with a prayer. Mm -hmm. Our great Heavenly Father, thank you for your promise of rest. And thank you that it includes so much more than just stopping activity. We pray for this refreshment and this opening of our minds during this time as well. Thank you. Amen. So, what do you do when you've had a long, stressful day? at work or at studies. If you like most people, you sink into a nice comfortable chair and you reach for the remote. Or, that's probably an older generation, yeah, you just say. grab your phone and you go to YouTube or you go to your favorite social media platform and you start to scroll. scroll. And if you're at work and you feel you need a quick break, you also go to your social media, right? And you just spend a couple of minutes just strolling around in it. It may seem like an innocent way to disconnect and kind of get a rest, but apparently it comes with quite a noticeable cost to the economy. A recent report stated that social media network sites users are closing in on listen to this, $3.5 trillion in squandered productivity. So those... Per, per year. That's it, per year. $3.5 trillion lost in taking a rest to the economy, that they can actually measure how much our breaks are costing the economy. Adding up all those minutes mm -hmm. or half an hour or 15 minutes or whatever it is. It's quite a number. I mean, yeah. I had to look up how many zeros a trillion has and apparently that's the right number. But it, it's just so big. You know, that's mm -hmm. more than, you know, the budget of the United States for a year. Maybe one and a half times the budget. So mm -hmm. it's, it's quite a bit. So is there some wrong type of rest. That obviously is not, doesn't seem to be the right type of rest. It's wasteful. Is there some wrong type of rest? Um, We've been looking at the positive types. So. How, how, how long should rest really last? I mean, is it 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Is it a power nap? Uh, is it... <laughs> what, what is that? And today, so this, in this session, we want to look at a story. Maybe you've never looked at that story from the angle of rest. It's a story of a very world-famous missionary who was one of the most powerful evangelists. You can't imagine how powerful he was. Mm -hmm. And yet, we just know him a little bit under a different guise, right? Yes. You probably know him as the man with the fish, the big fish. 
I'm talking about Jonah. The Jonah was... Jonah, the running away. The running away prophet. Jonah was a fantastically successful missionary. There are few that have batted his average. He was a very reluctant one, though, as you can remember. Whatever Jonah was busy doing, God obviously interrupted him, and he didn't take kindly to it. He decided to get up and run in the opposite direction, which is an interesting reaction. Now, most of the other prophets, when they were called, they didn't say, yippee, yay, send me. Most didn't do that. Most of them spoke to God and, and kind of debated Argued, with made God, a made a point, but not Jonah. Off Jonah goes, and he runs in the opposite direction. Now, we don't, the Bible text, the biblical text, you know, of Jonah chapter 1 doesn't give us a reason why he's doing that. We can maybe get a glimpse of that when we read the entire book, because he does make reference to that. So, Instead of Nineveh, Assyria, he's going the opposite, Tarshish, in a boat, and he settles down for a good nap, and he rests. He's sleeping well, apparently, because he's sleeping so well that even this mighty storm that frightens the sailor, sailors um, doesn't do much, doesn't to, do much to, to bother him. Yeah. Well, let's have a look. If you've been at our previous... Uh, Seminars, you'll know that this, these aren't just lecture seminars, that we want them to be interactive. And so look around you, two, three, four people around you, make a little group, and here will be a discussion question, and we'll give you a brief minute or two to discuss it in your group, and then we'll have some feedback. So here's your question. This is not the first time that Joan has been called to speak for God. Why do you suppose he's reluctant to do it this time? And if you want the previous reference where he has spoken for God, we, we have it over there. But you're concentrating on why, why? the reluctance this time. Mm -hmm. Okay, quickly, in your group. This is just a warm-up question. Yeah, it's just a warm-up, yeah. So if you're sitting alone, please shuffle over to a group. We don't want any lonely people here. It's all about community. All right, It's getting quieter. You read the Bible text? Quick summary of that Bible text. Do you remember what it says? It says that his prophecy had become true. So he was a bona fide prophet. He was a real prophet. He was not a false prophet uh, under King Jeroboam. But the question was, why does he, you know, why do you suppose that he was so reluctant this time? Why did he run in the opposite way? What do you think? Ah, yes, thank you. He might have had some prejudice he, that he'd have to speak to bad people or people that had hurt his people. Good, okay. good. Any, yes, please. Oh. Ah. She said here, maybe he didn't even think that these people were worth saving. I mean, they are really the bottom of everything. All right. So he didn't want to Prejudice. Tell them. You not know, really saving. not concerned about their value. Okay, that, that's a good beginning, I think. That's, and that's really reading it in the context of the entire book because we get a hint of this in his responses, in his discussion with God in chapter 4. The historical, touching on to what both of you have said, the historical records show that the, the, the Ninevites, the, the Assyrian overlords, they were not nice people. Hmm. 
to put it very mildly, they um, dominated the, the Near East during the 8th century. This is the time, of course, when Jonah is, is ministering. About 75 years after Jonah's call, after his ministry to Nineveh, we have the king Sennacherib, who actually attacks Judah. Israel and Samaria have already fallen before then, and King Hezekiah uh, has apparently, he's joined a local anti-Assyrian coalition. So there's conflict all the time between God's people and Assyrians. Assyria is the empire, the governing empire at that time. Um, Chantal and I, we spent a couple days, a week actually, some years ago, excavating in Lakish with the team from Southern Adventist University. And Lakish was the city that the king, the Assyrian king, had described in his own writings, in his, in his chronicles, how he had destroyed the city together with, I think, 43 other fortified cities of Israel in that in that uh, It's pretty area. sobering when you dig around there. He claimed to have killed 200,000 people. Now, numbers in historical documents, you have to be careful because there was always propaganda involved, but he really had hurt. And when we excavated Lakish, you could see that major siege ramp that they had built and, uh, by you know, using slaves, Judean slaves, and it was massive, the destruction that happened at that moment. Mm. So there, is some, there are some good reasons that people living in Judah or in Israel didn't like the Assyrians. Uh, just touching on that, there was one thing that they used to make a, uh, an example of leadership that had rebelled against them by skinning the people alive, mm. which is really, really gruesome. And I, I, can, ugh, I, I just feel revolted. I, I can understand that Jonah must have felt kind of revolted too. Uh, at the prospect of having to go now to witness to these people, to go and, and talk to these people. On the other hand, you want to ask yourself, why does God bother to send a message to such a cruel nation, mm. to such horribly cruel people? And maybe what, what you said here, are they really worth saving? Are they not just at the lowest? Why would... God really bother about them. Yeah. And then again, when we think about it, we know that God loves everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a good thought. But does God really love murderers? Does God really love child abusers? Mm. Does God really love drug pushers? <laughs> does God really love these people? This must have been a pretty big question also for, for, mm. for Jonah. Does, do they get an opportunity after the things that they've done and are busy doing? Do, are they also invited to find rest and a safe place in Jesus? Well, Jonah does find some rest. You remember the story? In the middle of the storm, finally he gets woken up and the captain and the seamen, they, they, they declare that they're innocent. They throw him overboard and suddenly there's quiet and God sends this big fish. Now, the Bible doesn't say if it's, it was a whale or not. I, put, I used the whale image there. But this big fish comes and swallows Jonah, and in the depth of the sea, in this fish, he rests. He rests for three days. 
That's what the Bible text says. And he writes one of the most profound psalms, a psalm that expresses some of the joy of being saved, that somehow says, I'm trying to see your salvation again. It, it's quite extreme when you think uh, he, it's almost, I wouldn't call it a suicide, but he, he just sounds like he's given up on life when he says to, to, the, to the sailors, throw me into the sea. It's sort of this, this apatheticness. And then this time he spends in the fish and things change for him. Mm. Joel, do you want to read us that prayer? Yes, I can. If, if you have it there for us. I'll get it there. It's quite the turnaround. If you think that you're in a dark, uh, wet, unpleasant place, and it's his moment where he's connecting or reconnecting with God. And out of this, we have a psalm, a song that, that comes out. It says here, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, and you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is the Lord. Salvation is, of, is the Lord. of the Lord. Did you hear the focus point? The temple. He's going to look towards God's salvation. And of course, this wasn't the temple in Israel that he's speaking of. He's speaking of the heavenly temple because this is where salvation is. This is the only place he can look to being inside the fish here. This is where it happens, right? That's correct. So we have a question here that like, we'd like to hear some feedback from you. How can an understanding of the heavenly sanctuary, that's something that Adventists believe in, that we often talk about, how can an understanding of the heavenly sanctuary and what Jesus is doing there for me help me find rest? Remember, we're talking about rest. Let's take a minute or two and talk into your, in your groups, and then we'll hear some feedback, and then we'll go on. I saw some hands immediately shoot, so shoot There must up. be some good, good, good answers coming. All right. So just take a minute or two in your group. The idea is to get as many people as possible talking. Okay. Any ideas? What, well, how does this concept of a heavenly sanctuary and Jesus interceding on our behalf, on my behalf, how does it really offer me some rest or, you know, access to rest? Any ideas? Yes, please. Okay, so just for the recording, I'm repeating this. The idea maybe it's 
reassuring that you know somebody who has really given an offering, he would take care of us. Like in in ancient Israel, you know, the sacrifices they were brought because there was the surrender part of the surrender, also indicated that somebody else is doing the work. It's not what we can do, but he has done it already. Okay, anything else? Anybody else? Yes, Jonathan. Thank you. So there's grace, there's justice, there's mercy in the sanctuary, and that's all at our disposal. I mean, God is... Re it really... It, maybe that's, that's what it's all about. The sanctuary reminds us that the world is not about me, about us, but it's around... It's theocentric. You know, it's focusing on God and on what he is doing in this mm -hmm. world. I think this is something that... Did you have your hand? No, no. I, I think this is something that Jonah gets because he, he had to get it. He, he realized he couldn't save himself. He, he needed grace at that moment and air, fresh air, but he needed grace. <laughs> yeah. He sure did. And he realized there was nothing he could do to save himself mm. at this point. And he was completely dependent on God. So he gets it. He grasps grace. That's what makes him so happy. He comes out. I'm alive. God's heard me. God's forgiven me. God's given me another, another opportunity. He says, okay, I'm off. And so he goes to Nineveh. Well, let's, let's move on with the story. Here's a relief that describes a little bit or that shows a little bit the, the city of Nineveh. That's, that's a historical relief by a later king, about 100 years later, Sennacherib. Um, found, and you can see some of these mighty walls and towers that are behind those riders there. That's, that's Nineveh. Nineveh was huge compared to Jerusalem or, or Samaria. Any city in, in tiny Israel and Judah, Nineveh was huge. It's like comparing, you know, New York City with, um, I don't need to, you know, you try not to embarrass, embarrass anybody. anybody. <laughs> A little town in Germany, you know. I played yeah, you, safe. You played safe. I that played was, that safe, was, that, yeah. was, that, was, that was good. So he walks into the city. It's tremendously big. You've, you've got to walk three days to get through it. Mm -hmm. So it's a big, it's a big, big city. Mm -hmm. um, and he has a strange sermon. It's probably one of the strangest sermons, right? There's no, it is. At least what we're given in Scripture. We don't know if that's all of the sermon but, uh, you know, there's not a nice illustration. There's not even a call at the end. It's, it's just straight. It's just to the point. Shall 40 more days. Yeah. Oh, there we go. It's so short. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Mm. That's the sermon. Now, here's the question. Next question. How is the strange sermon received? Now, that may be a very easy answer, but... Let's start off with, an, with that easy, easy answer. How is it received? We don't need to go into the groups for that, I think. Mm -hmm. we, we know the story. What, ha what happens at that moment? They accept it. I mean, that is really very <laughs> surprising, isn't it? I mean, for me as a preacher, that would be surprising. This kind of sermon and <laughs> 120,000 people, that's why we think he's one of the evangelist with the highest track record that is out there. Um, 120,000 people seem to convert. You know, there's, there's a change. There's a turning around. Mm -hmm. they, they do it in, in typical Near Eastern fashion. We have the, the 
tearing of the robes, the putting on of sackcloth and ashes, the, the mourning. And I mean, it's right all the way through, from the king all the way through, down to the animals. The animals get some ashes sprinkled over them. Because remember, if, if Nineveh's going down, so are the animals. They may be unwilling participants, but that they, they included, unfair as it is as well, in, in part of this. So it's a, a general repentance that we have all the way down. Now, it's surprising to see this because obviously the sermon must have not been preached with lots of emotion or even with an offer of love. It was just, matter of fact, this is what's going to happen. God will destroy this mm -hmm. city because of its wickedness. And maybe he muttered under his breath, and rightly so. <laughs> I'm, I'm not too sure. That's not biblical. But it seems to reflect what he thought, what, what he you know, expressed when he discussed this with God. You know, when we, when we think of the sermon, it does turn a lot of things upside down, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And maybe God does this on purpose just to remind us of a few things. You, when, we, when we go on an outreach, when we hand out glow tracks, when we do things and, and something happens, we, we get really excited, right? We get really excited. But there's always the big danger there of saying, wow, I did it. Yeah. Oh, we you, did it. We did it. Mm -hmm. We are real important to the whole conversion process. You know, God needs us uh, in, this, in this matter. Maybe this uh, part of Joseph doesn't. Uh, uh, Joseph, the, the, this part of Jonah shows us that maybe God doesn't need us. Mm -hmm. Maybe the rocks can call out. We'll, we'll probably come back to this a little bit later on. There, there, there's something more to to the whole missionary making process. Okay, next scene. Um, we called it the angry, restless missionary. I think that's kind of where he is at that particular moment. If we read a little bit in chapter, in chapter 4, and we'd like to, to ask you a question there. Chantal, huh? Yeah. It's a simple question. What is Jonah so unhappy about? You can read Jonah 4, 1 to 3. What is he unhappy about? Okay, let's take a minute, just a minute. You can do that in a minute. In your groups, what is he really unhappy about? All right, what do you think? Why was he so unhappy? I mean, God, God is talking to him. I mean, if, if we, a, a dialogue begins after that, but why is he so unhappy? Why is he angry? God spared the people. Sorry, I'm my age. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's a good one. God's mercy clashed with his perspective of justice, especially justice of Nineveh's actions. Yes. Okay, he's feeling entitled. He is part of the people of God, the, co the covenant people. Mm -hmm. Repent. Yeah. He has this hatred of the Ninevites. He hopes, I mean, maybe he anticipates their destruction, and yet when it doesn't happen, he just can't get it. 
God, why are you letting me down? Yes. Oh, thank you. Now, that would be more reflective on himself. Yeah, he's, he's worried, he's about, worried about being considered a false prophet because, you know, he made the statement and it doesn't come, become reality. That's a good one. Thank you. Good. It's, it's such a pity that the book of Jonah, you know, the story didn't end on chapter 3. Mm-hmm. It would be a, a, really, a really good high point, but it doesn't. And I think you've touched on really, really good points. Why Jonah is so upset. Yes, he is upset about his credibility, mm-hmm. that he's going to look stupid. Now, if he goes back down into Nineveh and somebody will turn around and say, oh, yeah, 40 days are over, then where am I going to hide my head? So he's, he's embarrassed for himself. He also thinks that it's not fair. Mm. How come you can live like this and then just repent and get away with it? And all my life, I've been going to Sabbath school, I've been going to church, I've been doing... It's not fair. It's not fair. You know, it reminds me of a story that Jesus tells. Perhaps you remember that story too, about two brothers. Mm. And the one takes all the money and hightails off and ends up with the pigs and wasting everything and comes home. And you have the older brother, who sounds a lot like Jonah, Right? Why, why is there a party for this no good now? Why, why are we having a party for him? Well, somehow God has a lot of patience for Jonah. And maybe this, the book or the story of Jonah is not about Nineveh, really. It's, it's a story about God and a prophet, or his prophet, God and Jonah. Here's the next question we'd like you to think about. Why is God not prepared to let Jonah rest in his own comfortable little world? Remember, he kind of had some plants around him, was protected from the sun, had a good view, was anticipating some nice fireworks, and it all just didn't happen. Why is God engaging Jonah so consistently? Talk to one another and then talk back to, to us. Okay, what do you think? Why is God so insistent? Why does he bother Jonah all the time and keep pushing him and taking away his comfortable little space. What do you think? Okay, so there's two parallel stories, really. The one is about Nineveh, and maybe that's not the main story, but maybe the bigger story is how God deals with a prophet who runs away, who, you know, is unhappy and so on. Okay, so in other words, God pursues us. Any, Any other idea? Grow. Okay, so let me just repeat this. God may use or will use these type of experiences to help us grow spiritually, and maybe you, you use the metaphor of a journey, maybe that journey with God and, and Jonah. Thank you. And you had your hand up. Good. Let me repeat this for the recording. I don't think that it's easy for us to change our perspective when we're sitting in our comfortable zone or in our comfort zone. Yes. Okay, she said maybe it was also because God didn't want his character to be misrepresented before the Ninevites, maybe up to a certain point, but then he kind of steps in and says, well, hang on for a moment. All right, let's, let's move on here. I, I think we, we're, getting, oh, we're yes. getting some warm-up here. That's very good. Um, I, I, I like the idea, some of you mentioned that... Um, that God's concern was not just for Nineveh, but especially for uh, this prophet. 
Um, we quote this text, John 3.16, very glibly, very quickly, God so loved the world. And we forget that the world is really sometimes very unlovable. You know, there's people that, you know, are disgusting. Chantal, I don't know if it was in this session, it kind of blurs all together, or in an earlier session when she says, is it possible that God loves an abuser, a child molester, a, a, some, a murderer, a terrorist, a, whatever you can put in there. And that's really John 3.16. He does love them. I think this also, and I must be careful here, but this also touches on, on witnessing mm. and witnessing models, perhaps. I think it's very easy to fall into the mindset of thinking that if I can give someone a list of Sabbath texts, then I'm done. They have been witnessed to. Or perhaps, um, you know, if I get up in, I don't know, get up in the, 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 the bus and, and preach about the mark of the beast, you know, just get up there and do be a street preacher then I've done my bit. I've been a good missionary out there. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that outreach, handing out literature, preaching, etc., that there's something second-rate about it or that we shouldn't be doing it. But I do want you to maybe open the mind that that may not be what missionary activity is all about. We could be losing ourselves in thinking that we've done the job. If every home in the United States has a great controversy mailed to it, then Jesus can come. That is not the kind of missionary activity that God is calling for. It seems to be something different, right? I think it is. Um, you, I put that slide up, miss you, and I think that's, that's the attitude that God expresses that I see in God's pursuing of, of Jonah. You know, he's really going after him. He just doesn't leave him alone. He just gets after the man. And again and again, because Jonah is, is important to God. Just one individual. Like those 120,000. I, I love how, how, how God reasons with Jonah at the end, the last verse. That's the, that's the last thing we hear about the book. We don't know what happens. I think for me, I always, when I taught this book to an Old Testament prof, prophets class, I always said, this last verse suggests that, you know, something happened in Jonah because the book is included in the canon. He sat down and wrote it that only he could write that, you know. He said, I'm going to be embarrassed. Everybody will think for me always, forever, as the runaway prophet, the, you know, the real tough nut. And yet he said, I'll do that because... God pursued me. Remember how God ends here. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? In other words, who have no moral compass and much livestock, even including those animals that you mentioned. I, I remember, I, I, I'm speaking to a certain age demographic, so <laughs> long, long ago... <laughs> There was a, a, a movie that was made called Matthew. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. It was just the book of Matthew that was read and, and acted out. It's not that long ago. Uh, yeah, okay. So it's not that long ago. Maybe but 30 anyway. 30 years. 
maybe 30 years ago. <laughs> so um, it's just the book of Matthew that was read and then, then acted out. And I remember I read the, 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 the man who played Jesus for, for the, the role. It, it totally changed his life. Um, he, he gave up acting after playing that role, and he dedicated himself to going to schools and talking about Jesus and trying to introduce students to Jesus. And he, he records he, he wasn't a practicing Christian when he took the role uh, for, for, this, for this movie. But he tells of, you know, he, he really tried to get into Jesus' head for the role, as a good actor should. So he, he memorized all of Jesus' uh, speeches, but he tried to get into how would Jesus be feeling when he said this? What would he be thinking? And, and this is what really converted him. But he said something very poignant. He said on one scene, they, they, shot, um, they shot some of the extras in India where they had big crowds of people where they needed a lot of people you know, on the streets and things. And, and he was all there, and it was a normal day on shooting. And, and he, he was walking along, you know, as Jesus, walking along the street. And he saw all these people, and he, it came to him, you know, many, many of these extras, they're not Christians. Mm. They don't know about Jesus at all. And he says it had never happened to him before, but he suddenly was overwhelmed with a feeling, a deep longing for these people. He said, how are they going to know about Jesus? And he says he started crying. Hmm. It was just so overwhelming that he started crying. And, you know, the director said, what's going on? And, well, we'll just run with it. Just keep it running. He just couldn't stop himself. Uh, And he speaks about this pivotal moment of, he says, he thinks God gave him just a little tiny taste Hmm. of what God feels for us. This deep, deep longing for us. And I see this as part of the Jonah story. This is what God wanted to do for Jonah. He wanted Jonah to share his passion for the Ninevites. To share his heart for the Ninevites. It wouldn't just be, it's not just a a job. And I don't know about you, but I've had this feeling where you think, well, I need to go out and be a missionary. Okay, we've got to engage in a missionary activity. Have I done enough? Uh, oh, 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 I hate handing this out. All right, I have to go and do it. Uh, there's a different mindset here. This is this passion for mm. people that will burst out into a 100,000 creative ways of reaching out to them mm. when we are passionate about our mission field. Well, I like this the idea, the story, the illustration of the hatching of a chick, Chantal. Do you, you remember that process? I think mm-hmm. you had chicks at home. Yes. We didn't. But, and I remember how, how important it is that the chick actually pushes itself its way out of, mm-hmm. of the, the shell. It takes great effort. But the problem is if you help the chick to come out of the shell, the chick will die. I remember that that happened to you, I think, in your family. Mm -hmm. We tried to help the chicken out. (laughs) And it wasn't a great help to the chick, unfortunately. But maybe that's that's something that God is working in our lives as as we focus on on a world that needs him, that we are part of his mission. We we join his mission. We Mm -hmm. become part of, 
of kind of co-joint in, in his mission. I, I see a, an element of rest in there. Mm. Uh, that we don't have to be restless missionaries. That we don't have to feel guilty missionaries when we are connecting into God's passion and linking up with God's passion. All right, here's a question. Maybe that's, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but <laughs> shall we tackle that or shall we move forward? Well, maybe let's, let's just ask the first queer part of it because mm -hmm. I did use it as an example already there. But when would you consider an area evangelized? Just quickly in your group, when would you say this area is evangelized? Okay, well, it's nice to see you chatting to each other, and I saw a hand already coming up. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Just to remember, when would you consider a certain area or region evangelized? Social media. Okay, thank you for helping me to summarize. And I said, how am I going to do this, the summary for the short summary for, this, for the recording? Maybe it's very difficult to say, well, this area is evangelized because there's always someone who, that will come up later, that Barry, you know, in the illustration that Alan White uses. Thank you. Thank you. Any, anybody else? Okay. When somebody, when anybody or all of us are dead or up in heaven. Okay. So that would be timing more, but we, we look more geography here. When, when, where would you consider a an area, a region evangelized. We often talk about the 1040 window. Many of you are familiar with that term. That's, you know, the, the latitudes between, you know, that if, that is, if you look at it at a map, that's where basically no one is Christian. Nobody has an understanding of Christianity. Nobody has maybe even access to the Bible and to translations in, the, in their own languages. If you look at the Middle East, if you look at Northern Africa, if you look at China, to a certain degree, and, and other uh, southeastern nations. So, more than half the world population in that region, definitely that is not evangelized. But what I'm hearing you say is there is very little space where we'd say, oh, no, we don't need to focus on that, because somebody's still living there. Okay? Well, that could be a little tiring, right? <laughs> and a little bit discouraging, Okay, well, maybe we should uh, jump over to the next question then. Okay. Uh, all right. Considering if we think that the work's never done, it's not a very restful idea. So what's the link between resting in Jesus and reaching a world in need? How can we only reach when we are rested? Hmm. Okay, take a minute for that one. All right, I think we're kind of getting into the zone where we can hear some, some feedback. What's the link between resting in Jesus and reaching a world in needs? Can we only reach uh, when we are rested? And there's a text, you know, this famous text from Matthew eleven twenty eight that really is that imagery there. Any, any ideas? What did you come up with? What did you discuss? That one here, okay. The love of self brings unrest or makes us restless. And yoking ourselves to Jesus gives us this rest. That's what Jesus tells us. Okay. All right. Anything? Yes, please. Thank you. Trusting God offers us peace because we know that really, ultimately, he's in charge of the work. 
that's why we yoke to him, you know. <laughs> you know, you can, a big oxen, and there's a little Gerald, that's me, you know, in that yoke. In other words, it's a very unequal relationship, right? All right, I saw Jonathan. Okay, let me, let me try to summarize it for the recording. We have this promise that Jesus himself gave us that the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached and then the end will come. So we think that God has this under control. We join him. We join God's mission. And maybe that's, that's key to that. We kind of catch a little bit the DNA of mission that God put into our hearts. That's maybe part of the image of God also and the and the likeness of God that he puts something in our heart. And Dina raises the hand. Yes, please. Okay. We need resting in Jesus and being rested is really an important, crucial element of reaching others for Jesus in other to be missionaries. Mm. Some of my, uh, well, actually all three of my, my daughters are, are lifeguards or have done lifeguarding. Has anybody else done it here? Oh. And... One of the things is when, when someone's drowning out, out there, um, y you have to wait. You have to wait until the drowning person is actually ready to be rescued. Sometimes, apparently, you have to even wait for them to become unconscious before you can rescue them. Because sometimes they're so panicked that they grab you and pull you under with them. And then you both drown. So you need, as the rescuer to also take that moment, wait until the correct opportunity, and then rescue that person. I, I, I liked what I heard here from you. I, I, I think we need to have that DNA of, of love for people that seemed to have missed in Jonah at that moment. He learned that. I think he did. That's why he included the book. But... That's something that is not, I'm just doing a job and, or God tells me to, a command, but it's rather I am willing to, Learn to engage mm -hmm. other people that I don't like, Ninevites, that I maybe they have hurt me and love them God's way. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really mm -hmm. a transformation in our DNA, really. So it's really in our mission activities, we only find rest when we link into God's rest. Mm. Then we find rest in our activities. And God doesn't send us on missions uh, to get a job done. God sends us on missions to transform us. Okay. We'd love to end, because we need to end, um, with a quote. We have two quotes, but I'm jumping over one because of time. But the second quote from Ellen White that I thought was really significant, the first one's important too, but maybe more specific to Jonah's story. But this one here, maybe Chantal, you can. Mm -hmm. you, you work in the wider state, you can so read I that. Get to read it. Okay. Yeah. Thousands can be reached in the most simple and humble way. The most intellectual, those who are looked upon as the world's most gifted men and women, are often refreshed by simple words of one who loves God and who can speak of that love as naturally as the worldling speaks of the things that interest him most deeply. Mm. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you in a special way that you want to plant this love for the people around us into our hearts. There are so many that long to be loved, 
that haven't found that love. And we pray together collectively this afternoon that you give us this love because we can't reproduce that. We thank you for your pursuit of, of Jonah. You really went after him and we thank you that you do the same for each one of us. Reach our hearts today, tomorrow, and when you reach our heart, help us to reach others. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded in partnership with AudioVerse at the GYC conference Break Forth in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.